Philip Sargent is an author and academic teaching at the Open University UK, where he researches the relationships between language, politics, and social media. He frequently works as a consultant for the BBC and other media outlets, and his writing has appeared in publications such as The New European, Prospect, The Huffington Post, and Wired. In this episode, as a part of our mini-cast on politics, we discuss Philip's most recent book, The Art of Political Storytelling. Using Donald Trump and Boris Johnson as case studies, we talk about how leaders embolden political narratives, myth-making, and outright lying. We also discuss the role that people play in perpetuating those stories, be it through mainstream news or conspiracy theories on social media. Throughout our conversation, Philip offers a compelling way of understanding today's hyper-partisan post-truth politics. Take a listen. So you're here today on the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm here with Philip Sargent, the author of The Art of Political Storytelling, Why Stories Win Votes in Post-Truth Politics. Philip, thanks for being on the show. Really looking forward to discussing the ways that people shape narratives and, and their motivations for doing so. And especially right now, it's obviously so relevant building up to the U.S. election in November. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. So just to get started, what inspired you to write this book and why do you think it's important to talk about right now? The sort of the starting point was this idea of post-truth that came up well with the last presidential election in 2016 and also in the UK Brexit and things like that. This idea that facts and sort of rational approaches to understanding the world were getting marginalized, should we put it that way? And I was thinking of ways, obviously, a lot of people were thinking of uh, doing work on that and thinking around it. And I was thinking of ways of how to approach it, which would be a little bit different from what everyone else was doing. And the thing that I kept coming back to was the idea that in this, the idea of post-truth is partly to do with the fact that there's a lot of lying going on, there's a lot of spin, there's a lot of the idea of experts and so forth is being downgraded. But it's also the idea that people react to things on an emotional level more than or at least as much as on a rational level so people are making decisions about their politics from the point of view of how they feel emotionally to to what's going on and in thinking around this it struck me that sort of one of the most powerful ways that we engage other people in emotional terms is through telling stories through narrative that was the sort of starting point i started looking at how that actually happens and sort of digging into it a little deeper and that's and that's where the, the book came from. So, I mean, storytelling in general is obviously so powerful and has been something that we've practiced since the dawn of time. But with political storytelling specifically, when I'm thinking about my own life, I can think about these stories that I've been told from a very small age. It could be something as benign as a president chopping down a cherry tree and having to tell his father because he could not tell a lie. Or it could be something as insidious as claiming you're a self-made man with billions of dollars when in fact you're hemorrhaging in debt and pay less in taxes than people who work in the service industry. Yeah, yeah. You know, like what makes a political storyteller or what makes a political story powerful and resonate with people in particular? And why do truth and facts seem to sway people less than a good story? Well, I think the thing about a story is that it personalizes ideas and values and makes makes those ideas relatable to people. And as I say, the other thing is that it often has an emotional content. It can make us feel what it's like 
to experience, not actually to experience it ourselves, but to experience it through our understanding of how our own experiences projecting onto others, how these issues that politicians are talking would actually resonate with us. So storytelling works very well as a sort of as a persuasive way of, of putting forward a message and particularly, as I say, relating it, personalising it and making it relatable to voters, to the electorate, and doing so in a way that sort of pulls on their emotions. And it also relates often to, as you say, these sort of bigger myths we have, which often have something to do with the founding myth of what we are as a nation or what we are as a community. So a lot of good political storytelling sort of amplifies or plays off this original myths that we have of being British or being American. Notions such as the American dream, which is a particular story about how everyone has the chance to make it big through their own individuality and hard work, that's sort of a founding idea of what it means to be American in simplified terms. In the British case, it's sort of something to do with resilience and something to do with an island being an island nation separated from the rest of the world and facing challenges as a sort of resilient community. And these sorts of things underlie our identity as citizens, our identity as a nation, and then they get used as the sort of basis for some of the stories you were mentioning. Can you expound upon an example in your book that reflects this sort of like myth-making that happens on a nationwide level? Yeah, so as you were saying, without mentioning his name, but the, the Trump example of someone who's obviously already very much part of the establishment in many ways, very rich, successful in his own particular way, but puts himself forward as an outsider from sort of a maverick, an outside from the political establishment who can come in and change things, who gives up his comfortable life as it was because he feels a duty to save, make America great again, for a better phrase. And so that's a very sort of straightforward, dramatic narrative that we see elsewhere in films and so forth of a single person giving up his comfortable existence because he notices a threat to the society at large, going up against the odds of an establishment which is you know, an evil, self-interested, institutional establishment, and against the odds, trying making a difference. That, that's a story that... Trump has used himself, sort of personified himself, enacted in many ways, but at heart, and it's obviously, as soon as you start looking at any of it, you can see how spurious it is, as you say, managing to play the system so you're paying less tax than a cleaner or something. But at the same time, the story he moulds for himself is built on this, it's an archetype almost, which, as I say, also relates to the idea of the American dream because anyone, okay, in his case, he started with several million pounds and made it bigger. But in theory, he, he's putting forward the idea that, you know, if you work hard, believe in yourself and so forth. And yeah, you have within this notion of society, you have these unlimited opportunities. Now, as I say, as soon as you actually look at the details of that, it sort of falls apart. But it's a very straightforward, simple story, which has been the basis of all his political career, really. Oh, yeah. He totally ignores that whole generational wealth thing. I mean, you're right that the idea of social mobility is such a prolific fantasy of the American imagination. But I think what that national ideal has come to mean on the right and is embodied in this rather vulgar way by Trump is this libertarian rallying cry for free market capitalism. And that's antithetical to any kind of welfare state and 
I would argue, depends on exploitation of the masses to sustain itself. And then when you think about the history of racist housing and education policy in this country, once again, exacerbated to an extreme extent by Trump, I think it becomes somewhat impossible to deny that the American dream is for white people who are already in a protected class. So you've said this already, that especially since 2016 or even since the Brexit vote, it feels like we've just been entrenched in all of this of all of this political lying, all of this sort of storytelling on a national level. How do these political stories actually emerge? Is it an active creative process that people like Boris Johnson and President Trump are planning, or is it something that emerges more organically? I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, obviously... All political parties, political organizations have a huge PR or a huge communications network that they use to put out their message. But as I say, with someone like Trump and to an extent with the Brexit vote, I think there is an instinctual aspect to it. With, in the case of Trump, I mean, of course, he's, has, he's been, um, I don't know the best way to put it, he's been a showman all his life in different contexts, and obviously having the background in reality TV. Reality TV, despite the name, is very much something which manipulates a very simple narrative per each episode, which tells exactly these sort of stories we're talking about. And so it's popular because it's supposedly real people overcoming challenges, and it's emotionally engaging for that reason. So I'm sure Trump has picked up on that through his experience of doing that. And then sort of relating that to then what the the campaign mechanism would have to put these things out. I think that's, yeah, that's how it works. I mean, I mean, I guess that, yeah, it's a little bit of both. And that sort of makes me think about just like populist politics and, and social media and maybe the people's people's role in this, because Obviously, people like Donald Trump are beholden to their base, if you will, and Boris Johnson is very much obliged to follow the direction of the Tories or even like the more far right leaning parties in the UK. How do the stories that people and leaders tell inform and perpetuate one another? Is there a relationship between is there some kind of role that Trump's following has in, in perpetuating or even shaping the myth-making to you? Yes, I, I imagine so. The thing with any act of storytelling is it's not just the story itself, but it's how it gets told. And this is one of the reasons why we're in this sort of situation at the moment with this post-truth environment, because it's so easy now for messages to be circulated around the world via social media and so forth. And so everyone is sort of doing the storytelling themselves. It's not just Trump putting out a couple of adverts, as it might have been under Lyndon Johnson or some someone like that. It's a much more participatory process. And so groups pick up on aspects of these ideas and then rework them themselves, retell them themselves, be it through memes, be it through little videos, whatever it is. And then obviously that gets picked up by the Trump campaign. So he'll retweet them. His, his comms director will retweet them. So the telling of the story is much broader now than it would have been in the past, especially in the context like America, in the context like the UK to an extent as well, but in somewhere like American politics, where the campaign lasts for God knows how long. Months <laughs> Forever? Or like that, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, just, it's ongoing. It's ongoing from yeah halfway through if not before, but halfway through the sort of 
the four-year term, isn't it? And then also the amount of money that gets pushed into it. I mean, it's in the billions, I believe, these days. And so you've got that constant churning of ideas and uh, of narratives. Um, in something like the British case, it's a little less so, at least at the moment, it's possibly changing, because we don't have a presidential system. So it's not, in theory, all about around one person. It's supposed to be more about a party and so forth. In an election, the actual period of campaigning is much shorter in theory, although it obviously sort of spills over and there's much less money but supposedly ploughed into these things. <laughs> but because of all those things, it becomes almost a constant, you're constantly electioneering, you're constantly trying to put your message across and sort of gain advantage of your opponents. And that feeds media, especially social media, but other media. And so we've got this constant amplification of the message, if you will. But I think part of the amplification is people chipping in with their own ideas, people adding particular aspects to it. So it's something that obviously resonates with a lot of people in the first place. And then people are able to sort of chip in and reformulate it and so forth to extend its reach. And I suppose the other important point is, again, with social media, but also with sort of television media and I suppose newspapers, is that because of the changed economic circumstances that the media has been undergoing in the last couple of decades, what works best is things that are dramatic, for a better word, promote conflict and so forth, have a, a dramatic story structure. These are the things that people click on. These are the things that people read. These are the things that fill the cable news television. And so again, sort of the simple idea that a candidate will be putting forward then becomes a huge production via media. You know, it's built on conflict, it's built on drama, and that adds to the storytelling aspect of it. And are you thinking at all about like the difference between the linguistic power of things like memes or GIFs versus more conventional practices like stump speeches? I mean, I think the thing, the thing these days, everything is merged so much. So again, I mean, it would be good if we didn't have to talk about Trump all the time, but he's such a good <laughs> example. He's so perfect as an example for this. I mean, his in-person stump speeches, his, well, his rallies, they're face-to-face, huge crowds of different sizes and so forth. In many ways, it's a, just a traditional form of, of campaigning. But at the same time, the way it's used, then it gets picked up on social media, gets picked up on the media itself, and so forth. So all these things merge and become part of the big overall story, I suppose. People will take speeches by their opponents, re-edit them in slight ways to give false impressions of what was actually happening. Yeah, obviously memes will pick up on God knows what actual live events and so forth. So it's a very much an integrated process with the media boosting what's happening, but the real life events are still important, but almost as much as anything as uh, material for these other things, for the way that gifts then get picked up or memes are propagated and so forth. And it just really has such terrifying implications sometimes. I mean, when you have like a white nationalist in the White House legitimizing this, it obviously becomes so much more powerful. It's not like this this sort of alt-right organizing online wasn't happening before Trump. It's just that he vindicated it. But I, yeah, I don't know. I just think it takes such a nefarious turn as the people, which should be your healthy opposition, has become 
your enemy in such a hyper-partisan world. And, and so I guess it can have these really scary implications, like what just happened to Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. I don't know if you read about that. Yeah, about yeah. These, yeah these terrorists that tried to kidnap her because of some obviously terrible conspiratorial organizing online and and Trump is not helping matters anymore. I, I don't know where I'm going on this tangent. I'm just I'm just thinking about how it can like result in things like domestic terrorism. Yeah. I mean I think that's again if you go back to sort of the fundamental idea of what a story does, or a dramatic story particularly, it's always a protagonist and an antagonist. It's you need the enemy, the, the opposition. And that's how you define yourself as different from them. And that's how the challenge is overcoming them. And so because of the way that the media, both social media and to an extent, as I say, cable news and so forth, feed off this idea of conflict, feed off this idea of drama, yeah, those sort of debates become arguments and often become very simplified simplified arguments. This is the thing about a conspiracy theory. It's possibly based on the way the world works in terms of power and so forth, but it simplifies it to such an extent that it yeah, makes it absurd. I think that's why we're seeing, firstly, the rise of conspiracy theories, secondly, the rise of events such as the one you mentioned, and the fact that we're getting more polarisation and more extremism. Politics always does that to an extent because it, people have different opinions about things. And the idea is that you debate which opinion people, um, the electorate is most in favour of. But if you then heighten the rhetoric, make those differences of opinion more extreme, get into name calling and denigrating your opponent in all sorts of different ways, then you get that extremism. And then that can, well, does feedback into people's actual behaviours. So you have white supremacist marches and so forth and these plots to kidnap people. It's this mixture of the way that an aspect of storytelling is all, always how we put forward our values and differences and so forth. But then the way it's told and then the way certain people, so for example, in this case, Trump and the more, and populist leaders around the world, I suppose, then exploit it, it gets worse and worse and worse. And do you think the why in this case is getting worse? Do you think that people like Trump and Bolsonaro and all these other far right leaders are just doubling down on the same story that they've been telling for many years? Or has it evolved in different ways to you? I think the interesting thing is that it hasn't. You would have thought, I mean, as I say, one of the sort of basic stories of the populists that Trump used, Bolsonaro used, Johnson over here used to an extent, certainly the Leave campaign used, was this idea of a corrupt institutional mainstream and someone coming from the outside to change that. So in this country, it's Westminster. In, in the States, it's Washington. There's a, the swamp of Washington and so forth. And so logically, it would seem that once someone gets into power, then they can't still use that story because they are now the establishment. But as we've seen with Trump, Bolsonaro to an extent, they still manage to play that role despite the fact that actually they are the ones responsible and do have the most power in these situations. So Trump will be complaining about things like the deep state. Still somehow, I mean, the COVID crisis is, is an interesting one because he's playing off his own government in many ways. He's sort of, once he's responsible for what decisions the government makes in terms of how these guidelines and restrictions should come in. But at the same time, he's trying to put himself 
as someone who will break the rules, as a maverick, as an outsider, as someone who's defending abstract ideas of liberty and freedom, he's yeah portraying himself as a rule breaker, as, as, as someone who still feels that the establishment is is controlling us, is taking too much, playing too much of a role in people's lives. But at the same time, he is the establishment. So it's a strange sort of sleight of hand. But yes, very much, it's a matter of doubling down. The, the story hasn't changed from that perspective at all. And you're <laughs> speaking of the deep state. I mean, it just it just takes on such absurd levels at this point that, you know, after the vice presidential debate, for instance, I don't know if you were following it, but the most... The highlight of that evening was that there was a fly on Mike Pence's head. Yeah, and it was really the only thing that people were talking about. And I I noticed that Senator Rand Paul suggested that the deep state had planted a bug on Pence's head to fly on him. You you think it's satire, but unfortunately it's not. Um, But it is just incredible. I mean, I, I feel like I've been living in some kind of like waking nightmare onion article for four years, but whatever. But yeah. anyway, uh, something you, you brought up the COVID crisis. So, I mean, speaking of that, these masters of storytelling are coming up against, I think, the biggest challenge in both of their political careers yeah. for many, for many ways. I mean, do you think that the public health crisis is exposing the limits of their power in shaping the political narrative? Or is it, you know, are they pivoting by telling a different story? Do you think, yeah, do you think that COVID has posed more of a challenge to Boris Johnson and Trump? Yeah, absolutely. Just very briefly to go back to the deep state idea. I mean, one of the fascinating things I think about the way that Trump throughout his presidency has positioned himself, he's still complaining about Hillary Clinton. Still complaining about the Democrats, still complaining about Obama, despite the fact that's done and dusted. So somehow the enemy is still someone who doesn't have any other power. I mean, it's fascinating. But yes, in terms of the COVID crisis, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, because in a sense, what you've got is, as I say, so political storytelling, it's just a form of rhetoric. It's a form of persuasive persuasive language use, persuasive expression. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's out of touch with reality. It doesn't, you know, you can simplify things or you can fabricate things, but at the same time, you don't, you can still tell a convincing story which relates to reality. But I think the thing which is notable with Trump and Johnson and lots of the populist leaders is that the story gets ahead of them. (laughs) It goes off into the realms of fantasy. And with something like COVID, or an actual crisis where people are getting sick and dying, that's reality, which you can't, it's difficult to spin that beyond a certain point because that's actually what's happening. People are seeing it all around. And so I think it's interesting that Johnson, at the beginning at least, the sort of stories that were being used to persuade people in the UK to comply with the regulations and so forth, picked up on this idea we were talking about before about an island nation coming together. There was a lot of rhetoric or at least references to things like the blitz spirit, the idea that at the beginning of World War II, the UK was fighting by itself and managed to get through that because we all pulled together. And so that was a story that was used quite successfully up to a point at the beginning of the lockdown and uh, and the COVID crisis. But then, because of a number of things that the government themselves did, where their policies and their own behaviour differed from what they were 
the story they were telling that sort of unraveled and now it's a whole big mess for want of a better word so that's the uk case the us case as i say i think partly because of this idea of individual liberty individuality and so forth the idea of a collective response is slightly mismatched with some of the sort of basic underpinnings of a national story and certainly is in contrast or in conflict with the sort of the values, the narrative values that Trump has been pushing forward. And so he hasn't been able to pivot or he hasn't even attempted to pivot to something else. He's still pushed this same idea that he won't be wearing a mask because he's an individual and so forth, whereas, you know, only Joe Biden wears a mask because he's uh, a socialist or whatever it is. That's um, man. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. It's, there's, there's something to do with virility, there's something to do with all these things. And so I think he's found it very difficult to shift from his underarch, his underlying sort of story. And as we're seeing, it's coming up into conflict with actual reality, the actual way things are. And it's very difficult thus to spin that beyond a certain point. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's coming into conflict with stories we tell about self-reliance in the U.S., but also how we understand masculinity, because somehow wearing a mask implies a lack of strength here. And I've, I've talked about this in other episodes, but it makes sense that a country which, fetici- which fetishizes rugged individualism would fail so brilliantly during a crisis that requires a sense of collective care, because What that value system actually translates to is decades of American austerity, be it, you know, a chronically underfunded public health system or privatized health care that is beyond the reach of so many working Americans, or it's the gaping hole in protections that forced millions of essential workers to choose between exposing themselves to the virus or paying rent. Um, you know, I could go on, but it's it's precisely this story about American selfhood that ultimately failed us. And, and on a more personal scale, I think something like somewhat negligible actions like mask wearing somehow have become a story about infringing on someone's inalienable rights. And somehow it's become, it's devolved into like an anti-mask wearing movement here. And I think as well in the UK, but maybe less so with assault rifles. But, you know, I just, <laughs> like, no, but truly I think it, it has become this like this whole war about infringing on people's individual rights. Yes, I mean, crazy. yeah, I mean, people talking about it in terms of free speech and so forth and yeah and the um yeah it sort of snowballed into a much bigger ideological battle which is odd and as i say so at the beginning of the uk lockdown there was a huge collective supportive gestures for the national health service as you know part of our modern identity as a nation and of course that just can't work in the u.s at the moment, because it's yeah related to so many other more complicated notions about socialism and so forth. I know. I mean, well, I find it even heartening that, I mean, I know it's total BS, but even like the Tories will say that they love the NHS. Even yeah. though we know if you actually investigate that, they're trying yes, to privatize. Exactly. But yes. It's still, a- I mean, I don't know, you probably get a better sense of this than me from living in New York, but there was a sense I got from when New York was the hotspot, there is a sense of New York as a community, again, which has this resilience, has this has this particular identity of 
yeah, a particular identity which is to do with itself as a, as a community. It, it's not quite the same as what was going on in the UK, but possibly that was a little different from the individualistic notions that someone like Trump was pushing. Oh, 100%. I mean, I've grown up here my entire life. It definitely feels like a different country sometimes. Yeah. But I think it's also like a generational progressive divide as well where people like millennials and gen z kids my age in the states i think have been obviously we've grown up on the internet we've traveled so much and i think we've run up against the the paradoxes and yeah just the problems of this myth making the american dream as you were saying i think that people see the flaws and lies embedded in that like for instance my living abroad in the uk and, and or just traveling and seeing how easy it seems for every other country in the world to have universal healthcare, except yeah. for like the wealthiest one on the planet, yeah. right? So I think <laughs> people at least my age are starting, especially in light of people like AOC and Bernie Sanders starting. Well, actually, this is a nice segue because we've been talking a lot about conservative storytelling with people like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. But I do want to think about the flip side, like for progressives and the political left or more establishment iterations of that meaning like the Labour Party and Democrats. Yeah. You think that those stories are different? Are they trying to communicate in a similar, are they in, trying to embrace a similar kind of storytelling to Trump or do you feel like their approach is different? A couple of things. Firstly, there's this sense that Democrats in the US and possibly the Labour Party and, and other sort of more people on the left are less good at this for some reason. There's a sense that throughout at least recent history that the Republicans have been very good at getting to the core of people's values and people's belief systems, where the Democrats have been reeling off statistics and reeling off rational arguments about policy. And I think that was one of the criticisms of Hillary Clinton again in the last election. She didn't, I mean, to an extent, she was possibly scared of fashioning a story around herself as the the first female candidate for the presidency at the actual uh, in the actual presidential election so there's that and related to that there's this idea that the left can't meme again this idea that the left isn't as good at exploiting these emotional maybe more controversial sort of notions possibly and i think that possibly relates to the way that the left is often or progressives are often tend to be a little more grounded in facts and so forth and so that I think there is a natural disjuncture there between the way these things work for the type of agenda that the right puts forward compared to the type of agenda that the left puts forward. So that could be part of the reason. Having said that, Barack Obama was very good at using exactly the same, I mean, if you dig down, he was using the same sort of template, the same idea of well, the same idea of the American dream, but with a slightly different shift. So rather than saying anyone can make it economically, financially, as long as you have your million pounds to start with, obviously. But <laughs> for him, it was, you know, America is inclusive and even someone with a, in his first speech, that famous line about even someone with a funny lame, name like me can get ahead. So it was the same idea that America is a place of possibilities and anyone can make it if they work hard and so forth, but with a different spin on it. And of course, I mean, the whole ideas of hope as the sort of overarching, the overarching emotion that he was talking about, Clinton used exactly the same thing, a man who came from a town called Hope. Um, So the left can do this and does do this in certain ways, 
But yeah, it's a, it's a slightly different take on it. And for whatever reason, in the past, they haven't been so so good at it or so ruthless about it. Maybe that's one way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I know that we're talking, I mean, you've talked about very specific examples. I know that it's hard to generalize about the quote unquote political left and right, especially when I think in the American case, it's it's quite generous to call people like Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton part of the political left, Sure, especially yeah. from my vantage point. But on that note, I mean, do you think that's sort of like a, an establishment response to political storytelling? Like, yeah, they're still telling a similar story to Trump about sort of like America being this idea that anybody can subscribe to, but there's like less of a white nationalist tend to it. But yeah. I mean, yeah. but how do you feel about the Black Lives Matter movement right now and the uprisings that are happening? Do you think that the storytelling being told by activists on the ground is different? Yeah. Do you believe that the way that they're crafting and communicating their ideas is different from somebody like Hillary Clinton? And if so, how? Coming, yeah. Just before we talk about Black Lives Matter, I, I mean, I think if you take someone like Bernie Sanders or AOC, they, in many ways, are doing, have certainly the way they've constructed their own political persona is very similar in a way to in a way to Trump, although you have to dig down to some sort of layers underneath, Um, obviously. But AOCs, I mean, again, she's that story of someone who, I think she said that in her campaign video back in 2018, that she never thought politics was for her, working in the restaurant, working in in bars and things. It seemed, you know, a different world. And yet at the same time, against the odds, she decided to try and make a difference and try and enter politics and since been successful. So that sort of same idea is still there in people like that. Bernie Sanders has a populist aspect to him. You know, again, he's a maverick in the way that he's an independent rather than an establishment Democrat coming in, changing things and so forth. So to an extent, that can work as well. I mean, I suppose the point there is that that's more to do with their persona than their actual messaged uh, up to the point. Oh, but but totally. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but I agree with you. I think that AOC possesses this kind of rhetorical dynamism that people have been craving on the left. I mean, her social... her social media presence feels like a 21st century version of FDR's fireside chats. There's, there's this intimacy there. There's a righteous anger. And I think she's so refreshing for a few reasons. One, that Democrats often seem to be playing this high-minded political game where collegial bipartisan politics somehow still exist. And she's often the one to vocalize what we're all thinking, which is that you know, we're flirting with authoritarianism and that moneyed interests are preventing us from actually keeping it at bay. And and two, she just also knows how to do the internet. Like every time a Republican has tried to publicly shame her, she's just dragged them on Twitter and forced them to walk away with their tail between their legs. I just think that if the left wants to start winning, they should probably use her playbook. A little yeah. Bit. And I mean, to be honest, Bernie Sanders, despite being a slightly older generation, he managed to do something very similar, maybe not personally in the same way, you know, he's, I don't know, don't think he probably has an Instagram account or at least doesn't use it in the same way that she does herself. But again, making a sort of being very prevalent, using his distinctive persona to, to attract attention and so forth, and then telling this story of overcoming the corrupt uh, establishment, but doing it in a completely different way from Trumps and and so forth. So I think that possibility is there. And it's interesting to see why it hasn't worked so well for some people on the left, or or historically, over time, it's worked better 
for people on the right than on the left. But as I say, I mean, that idea, for example, that the left can't mean, there's probably an aspect of truth in it, but at the same time, it's not the case. So Black Lives Matter is the phrase, the hashtag, that's a meme in itself, which has been incredibly popular, incredibly successful. Me too is a meme which has been incredibly successful. So in some ways, yeah, there are a lot of counterexamples. On the note of the Black Lives Matter movement, do you think that they're practicing different rhetorical strategies? From Because obviously it's a grassroots movement. Does it look different to you from people who, even like AOC, who obviously is such a platform for the working people like she's a voice box for for regular people but i mean on the ground like is the story that people are telling different are they communicating that story differently than somebody like even bernie sanders or jeremy corbyn whatever yeah i mean i think what's interesting about some of these groups or some of these movements like black lives matter like me too Climate change is another interesting one, is that they're very dispersed and they don't have figures leading them or they don't have a persona around which to um, which reflect their values and so forth to use. And that's often very difficult in terms of telling, telling a story, getting a narrative that works very well in political terms because individuality, the idea of the individual is often works as a good example for the sort of values that movements are trying to put put forward and yet they've all been successful in to an extent i mean it's a very complicated issue i suppose black lives matter i suppose when it sort of got most purchase obviously in response to particular incidents and it was these particular incidents rather than the broader statistics about police brutality and so forth it was particular incidents which then had that emotional gut punch that got people around the world to take notice and then feel a huge investment in them. And to an extent, that sort of notion of personalizing things in these contexts through tragic examples, yeah, is the way that that attention has been brought to these issues. So there's there's an aspect of it. I think in terms of their overall strategy and so forth, as I say, the fact that it's a dispersed movement makes it more difficult to have and it makes it easier to criticize by people who are wanting to undermine the things they're doing as being a movement as such with a particular message and so forth it's quite a broad idea rather than rather than a, a, a specific movement yeah i don't know if that makes sense it's slightly different but the climate change protests against climate change are an interesting example in this like in extinction this respect, rebellion probably, you mean like extinction rebellion yes the Greta Thunberg thing is, yeah, like Extinction Rebellion, because climate change is something that obviously is going to affect the planet. <laughs> so it's going to affect us all. But at the same time, it's very difficult to get a handle on precisely how that's going to happen, because it's an abstract, I mean, it's happening now, we see disasters related specifically to it. But at the same time, it's still quite an abstract notion. It's still a future sort of notion. So getting that sort of personal investment in, in it from the population so that change can happen is much more difficult. It's much more difficult to tell an individual story rather than this sort of more general idea. And I think climate change protests have always suffered a little bit from that. Greta Thunberg's an interesting case because she then becomes the face of it. She becomes, you know, she becomes the uh, symbol of the fact that it's a generational thing, the fact that the politicians in power now who are letting down future generations and things. So that becomes a story that she can personify. But I think otherwise, it's traditionally been quite difficult to tell 
a story, despite the fact that it's to do with life and death and the, the survival of the planet as a whole, I think it's quite difficult to get a story that cuts through to people's everyday lives as they're doing whatever they're doing around dealing with all the other stresses of life, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, what I find so fascinating rhetorically about Greta Thunberg is that she's using shame and morality in these really interesting ways. Like for Greta, it's not like she has the solutions to combat the climate crisis. I think what she's doing is imploring adults to stop abdicating their moral responsibilities to future generations. And with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, it's forcing a reckoning over the lies told about American equality by highlighting the oppressiveness of our institutions, you know, everything from unchecked police brutality or to the ways that the carceral state is is a form of racialized social control that reiterates the Jim Crow era to, you know, sort of paraphrase Michelle Alexander. Um, but anyway, we really only have time for one more question, but thinking about the future, Something that we've been talking a lot about throughout this conversation is that leaders like Trump and Johnson are obfuscating the boundary between truth and lies as such a sort of integral element to their political storytelling. How do we, meaning the people, the media, et cetera, begin to reclaim that narrative and stop being so inundated with lying? Yeah, I think it's very much to do with the media environment we have and the economics of that and the way the way it works because it the relationship between the media both in the UK um, government and the US president and the the Republicans is a bizarre sort of love hate one they both depend on each other absolutely and yet at the same time they both they're in conflict but it's the fact that the way that media works both social media and and traditional media cable TV and so forth thrives off this notion of conflict, thrives off this notion of it needs to attract as much attention as much as possible. You know, that's the economic model it's based on. And because of that, it becomes easier to sort of game it in many ways by making sort of outrageous statements, by causing controversy constantly, by saying things which are patently false. And then that becomes a story in itself. And so I think it's the relationship that we've now got between the media and politics, which is so, you know, I mean, it's a, politics is an entertainment industry to an extent now. As we were saying earlier, you've got discussions about who's going to be the next president for at least two years before <laughs> an election. It's a constant fascinating car crash of, uh, of entertainment. But at the same time, that is not helpful for stable democracy. Politics should be a bit more boring, <laughs> should be a little bit, it should be more to do with the details than to do with the personalities. You know, obviously personality is important, but it should be. And so I really think it's the way that things are set up at the moment in terms of, and the fact that then the media has sort of, it's been complicit in almost through no fault of it, well, not necessarily through a fault of its own because it needs to do that to survive economically the, the way things are going. I mean, I think that's the biggest issue with a lot of these things. As I say, storytelling can be perfectly positive. It can, it's a very good way for passing information across. You know, basic ideas of storytelling work very well in educational contexts. And in that case, it's nothing to, it's not to do with fabrication, lies, and so forth. But of course, lies sort of make a more yeah, controversial, more, more dramatic, it attract a bigger audience. And I think that's the problem that we've we've had over these last few years. God knows what, I mean, yeah, we'll see what happens in this presidential election. But, 
yeah, you wonder where it can go unless something changes. Right. I mean, we can only hope that somehow the media will figure out a way to make it less financially incentivizing to amplify the outrage as if we are living in this reality show, as you said. They are totally complicit in what's happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. But as I say, I mean, it's difficult. They're complicit, but at the same time, they're sort of they're in a tricky situation because the economics have changed in terms of how news gets produced and so forth. Oh, absolutely. It's like a herd mentality kind of thing. Like if you're one publication and you feel very strongly about, I mean, you, you appreciate that amplifying Trump's lies is, is just giving him more power. But then if you see that the New Yorker is publishing a story about his latest outrage, then, and the Washington Post and the Guardian are too, then obviously there's a lot of pressure, I think, for the media to follow suit in some way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a a mixed picture. (laughs) Well, I mean, on that sort of ambiguous note, I just, I guess we just have to hope for the best. It's going to be an interesting next few weeks, definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that I'll I'll definitely want to talk to you a month from now when we're not quite clear whether or not we have a democracy. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much, Philip. This has been very engaging for me. Um, (laughs) This is clearly on my mind a lot as well. So um, I just wanted to thank you again for being on the show. (laughs) Well, thank you. uh, Yeah, very nice to talk to you. 